Good morning. Welcome to Oakton Baptist Church. Great to see you here this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, please open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 9. And we're continuing our series, and this is going to be the last message in 1 Samuel for a while because we're going to have a different series over the next two weeks at Oakton. And then when we come back in May, it is Go Month, where we're going to be looking at how we as a church can go and share Jesus. You see, our vision as a church is to gather to exalt Jesus, grow to become like him, give and serve him, and go and share him. So we're going to be out of 1 Samuel for a while through the month of May. So this is the last message in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 9. Now, if you remember from last week, we were looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we saw last week in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that Samuel, one of the main characters, is now quite old. And the elders of Israel, they come to Samuel and they say, you're old and your sons are worthless. So give us a king so that he may rule over us just like the nations. Now, this grieved Samuel because he knew that this had meant that there was spiritual drift in Israel. Because you see, Israel was supposed to be a nation in which Yahweh was their king. The Lord was their king. And the thing that was supposed to be the central thing about Israel was their worship of the Lord at the tabernacle and the fact that they lived under his law. So in asking for a king, this meant that there was spiritual drift in Israel. But Samuel, he takes their request to the Lord and the Lord says, I want you to obey their voice. But just warn them what a king will cost them. And so Samuel unpacks exactly what a king is going to cost them. But still the people refuse to listen to him. And in verse 19 of 1 Samuel 8, we read this. But they say, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles for us. Isn't that such a sad statement? Because that's what the Lord was supposed to do. He was supposed to be their king who would judge them and go out before them and fight their battles for them. But here they're rejecting the Lord and going for a human king. And what we're going to see in chapter 9 and 10 is the calling of the first king of Israel, King Saul. Now look down in 1 Samuel 9 and verse 1, we see the character of Saul spelt out. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Now, Benjamin was one of the smallest tribes in Israel. It had been uh, devastated because of a civil war in Israel. And there's this man called Kish, the son of Abel, the son of Zeor, the son of Berakrath, the son of Arath, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And verse 2, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, notice the way they're describing Saul. It's all physical descriptions. He's wealthy. He's comes through. His father's wealthy. He's handsome. In fact, he's the most handsome man in all the land. And he's tall. He's taller than anyone else. Now, the only other person that's spoken of as being tall in 1 Samuel is actually Goliath from Gath. So if you want a king to be like the nations, Saul, he really fits the description. He's wealthy, he's, he's handsome, and he's taller than anyone else. You see, isn't it true, even today, that the, the kings that we look up to are people who are externally beautiful. 
I don't know if you're excited at the moment, but my family's very excited because Will and Kate and George are coming to Adelaide. If you've been watching TV this week, you'll have noticed that they've been over in New Zealand, and in a few weeks' time, they're going to be coming to Australia. And I bet my wife will be the very first one lined up to see Will and Kate and young George. Now, what is the number one thing that they say about Will and Kate? It's not their character. They don't comment on their character, but they say that they're a beautiful young couple. And in particular, they talk about Kate and her beauty and what she's wearing and how wonderful she is. And I thought to myself, I wonder whether there would be all that much, you know, excitement about Kate if she wasn't so pretty. I guess you can ask Camilla. (laughs) So... Look down in verse 3 in your Bible. It says this, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. If anyone wants to name a child, that'd be a great name, Kish. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and he passed through the land of Shalashah, but he could not find them. And he passed through the land of Salim, but they were not there. And he passed through the land of Benjamin, but he did not find them. How frustrating, looking for these donkeys. He just can't find them anywhere. Looking through the hill country of Ephraim and those other places and through Benjamin. Verse 5, and when they came to the land of Zuf, now that was Samuel's land because Samuel's, one of Samuel's um, relatives was named that. Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. So it seems that Saul did have a heart for his father. He says, My dad's going to be worried, so we better turn back. But he said to him, that Saul's servant said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. If you remember from 1 Samuel chapter 3, it said about Samuel that he was a prophet and none of his words fell to the ground. And from the farthest place in the north to the furthest place in the south, everyone knew that Samuel was a prophet. Verse 7, then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone. And there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I'll give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man would inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. Verse 10, And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Now, what I want you to observe in this story so far is all the very mundane details. Kish's donkeys, of all things, are missing. And so he sends Saul out to to look for the donkeys. Uh, He passes through the hill country. He can't find them anywhere. They come to to the land where Samuel is. Saul says, I think we should go. Uh, The servant says, well, there is a man of God in the city. Let's go into the city. Perhaps he can tell us where they've gone. They say, but we have nothing to bring that man. And the servant looks and he finds, oh, well, I I have a shekel. I have a shekel of silver. Maybe we can give that to him. You notice all these just mundane details. Look in verse 11. As they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water. 
and said to them, is there a seer here? Now you'll remember that uh, Saul was the most handsome man in the land. So I'm sure that the young ladies had no trouble answering Saul. They answered, behold, he is here. He is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice after those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. Notice again the mundane details, just very mundane details. They go into the city, they meet these girls. These girls are going to get a drink. They say, is the seer here? The girls say, yeah, the seer's here. Uh, you just need to hurry up. He's going up to the sacrifice. Go up and see. And you, you need to do it quickly because after he blesses the sacrifice, he's going to have a meal with those people invited. Little did they know what was happening in verse 15. Look down in verse 15. We have a flashback. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. Now, underline that in your Bible. Is that right? Was it the Lord who sent that? It just seemed like there was a whole heap of random events. The donkeys were missing. Kish sends Saul after the donkeys. They search for the donkeys. They can't find the donkeys. You know, I, 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 I'm still looking for some of my donkeys. I can't find my donkeys. They look for the donkeys. Can't find the donkeys. Say, we should go to Samuel. He'll tell us where the donkeys are. We, we don't have a shekel. They look for a shekel. They find the shekel. It's just a whole heap of seemingly random events. Is it? But look down in verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel said to Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning, I will let you go and tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. Now, you must imagine what Saul's feeling at this time. I mean, he's just searching for some donkeys. And here he meets Samuel and Samuel tells him, seems to know who he is. He, he, he invites him to lunch and he tells him what has happened to the donkeys. But the next thing that he said would have been completely baffling for Saul. Look at what he goes on to say. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Now, that's quite complicated to understand. But basically what he's saying is, are you not Israel's hope? And Saul is baffled. He was just searching for some donkeys. And now Samuel is saying all these things. And Saul answers him and says, am I not a Benjaminite? I come from this small clan that was almost decimated in civil war from the least of the tribes of Israel. And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. So he took them into the, into the very place of this, 
of this meal and gave them the place of prominence, the, the place at the head of the table. But not only that, Saul must have been freaking out at this point because look down in verse 23. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave to you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and that what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. Saul's thinking, I just went after donkeys and now I'm in the head position in this in this meal, and now they're bringing out to me the leg. The leg was the portion that was given to the priests. So this was a very, very important part of the meal. It was a great honor for him to eat that. And so it says, so Saul ate with Samuel that day. To eat with someone, to have table fellowship with someone, meant that you were unified with them, that you were in fellowship with them. So here is Saul this lowly farmer searching for some donkeys and he's eating with Samuel, the great prophet Samuel. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he lay down to sleep. I wonder what type of sleep he had that night when he pondered all of these things that had taken place. He's out searching for some donkeys and now he's got this, he's, he's, he's had this, He's been at the head of the table. He's had this meal that's been prepared for him. It's just amazing. In the morning, at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up! Up! I love that. Up! That I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out onto the street. And now Samuel is going to reveal to him what this all means. Verse 27. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil. Oil was used to anoint kings, priests and prophets, the three major officers in Israel. And so Samuel anoints Saul, covers him with the oil, symbolizing that he has been consecrated by the Lord for a special office. And then he kissed him. Now, this kissing is not what we think, like a peck on the cheek or something like that. It was he bowed down and kissed his feet. In Psalm 2, we read that you need to kiss the son lest he be angry with you. This was a sign of reverence and homage that Samuel is playing to Saul. And then Samuel says to Saul, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel and you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. You see, Saul was just going out seeking donkeys, but the Lord sought him to be the king of Israel. You see, it was no coincidence that the family's donkeys got lost. It was no coincidence that Kish asked his son Saul to go out and find the herd. It was no coincidence that Saul took a young man who knew where the prophet lived and who happened to have a quarter of shekel of silver in his pocket. It was no coincidence that when the men came to the city, there were certain women who came out who knew what was happening in the city and urged them to hurry to meet up with Samuel. And it was no coincidence that the first person that they met after they talked to the women was Samuel himself. You see, if any one of these events had not taken place, 
Saul would have never ended up where he was supposed to be that day. But none of them were coincidences. They were all there by divine appointment. You see, look over in that text again. The Lord says, tomorrow at this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. Now, God, what he could have done is he could have got a golden flying chariot and he could have sent it to Kish's house, picked up Saul and sent him to Samuel. But he didn't. And he doesn't usually do that in our lives. What he does is he arranges the circumstances and situations to get us to where he wants us to be to achieve his purposes. This is what theologians call the providence of God. Pastor James Montgomery Boyce, he defines providence like this. Providence means that God has not abandoned the world he created, but rather he works within creation and manages all things to work them according to the counsel of his will. In other words, God works out his will in even the mundane things of life to achieve his purposes. Now, you might say, I can, I can take that this happened to Saul because he was like going to be the anointed king of Israel. But does it happen in my life? Does God orchestrate all the events of my life to achieve his purposes? Well, listen to what the Bible says in Proverbs 16, verse 9. It says this. It says, the mind of the man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. In other words, you make decisions. You made decisions to come here today. You'll make decisions when you leave. You'll make decisions about what you eat. But the Lord is sovereignly working. He's sovereignly over the top of that. Providentially, he's over the top of that to work his purposes. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 28. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. I love the NIV version of, it, of this verse. That was the ESV. I love the NIV version because it says it like this. God works together for good all things for those who love him. You see how it's active. It's God who's working things together. He's working things for his good purposes and for his glory. You know, it's interesting right here. We have Saul seeking, but he's actually the one who's being sought. All throughout scripture, you'll see this theme. You see in John 4, there's this woman at the well and she's seeking a drink of water. And she goes out to this well at midday to seek to, to have a drink of water because she's got moral issues in her life and she doesn't go out at the normal time with all the other women. She goes out alone. And little does she know that there's a divine appointment waiting, that Jesus is at the well and he's going to give her living water. Well, what about... Another Saul mentioned in the Bible, Saul of Tarsus. Have you heard of Saul of Tarsus before? He was seeking to persecute the church, to wipe out the church, to stamp out the church. And so he gets letters from Jewish officials so that he can go and imprison followers of Jesus in Damascus. But on the road to Damascus, he has a divine appointment. He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he calls him to be Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. You see, I don't know why you came into this place today, what you were seeking. But I know something. God is seeking you. And he wants you to come to him. You see, here's my big point today. 
is God providentially orders our lives to achieve his purpose. God providentially orders our lives to achieve his purposes. Now, I have three applications for you, okay, that come out of that big theological statement. God orders our lives to achieve his purposes. Here's first point. Number one, number one, if you are suffering or in pain today, recognize this, that it does have a purpose, that God has a purpose in it. You see, as we look in this story, I think for Saul, it would have been very frustrating as he searched and searched and searched for these stupid donkeys and can't find these stupid donkeys anywhere. And maybe this week you've had a very frustrating week. I don't know what type of week you've had, but maybe it's been a very frustrating week. Realize this, that God allows this for his purpose. And in Romans 8 verse 28, after Paul says that God works all things for the good of those who love him, he tells us what his purpose is. He says that he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. You see, everything that's happening in your life, God allows it to happen so that you will respond in faith and obedience and become conformed to the image of Jesus so that you will look like Jesus in your life. The frustrating things that you experienced this week. Who had some frustrating situations this week? Yeah, some frustrating things happen. All of these things come into our lives so that God can achieve his purpose of changing us into the image of his son. Praise be to God for what he does. You know, Tegan and I, we were at Ben and Tiana's wedding last night. Congratulations to Ben and Tiana on getting married. Fantastic. And uh, congratulations to the family if you're here today. Fantastic. Great wedding. Real privilege to be involved. And of course, at weddings, you know, you know what you do at weddings? You reflect on your own marriage. And Tegan and I have been married for 20 years. So I've ref- been reflecting on it recently. And, and uh, you know, I think after 10 years, I would have thought that we got married too young because we got married at the age of 19. And I think after 10 years, I was I thought to myself, you know, it probably would have been better to have waited until we were older. I still wanted to marry her, but waited till we were older and sorted some things out. But just the other day, as we hit the 20-year mark, I thought to myself, no, I wouldn't change a thing about it. I wouldn't change a thing. Because, you see, all that pain, all that struggle, all that hardship has been part of God's way of shaping me and molding me. And if you're a Christian here today... All the pain, all the suffering, all the various situations that you go through are all weaving in your life a beautiful tapestry, and that tapestry is Jesus. So firstly, if you're suffering, take heart. God has a purpose. You may not see it now, like Saul didn't see it for a while, but eventually you will see God's purpose. Here's the second point. This is very important. Write this down. Very important, very important. Interpret God's providence through God's word. Interpret God's providence, what what happens in your life, through God's word. You see, I think for Saul, if, if the story had have finished at verse 26, at that point, Saul would have thought, man, what a weird day I just experienced. I mean, I was looking for some donkeys. I came across Samuel. And Samuel told me that the donkeys are okay. 
And then he took me in and he gave me the privileged position in the feast. He gave me this privileged food and I had a good night's sleep. But what a weird day. Saul would not know what to make of his day. But it wasn't until verse 27 when Samuel came and made known to him the word of God. You see, all of us here with our lives, the providential things, the circumstances that happen in our life, we need to interpret them through the lens of God's word or we can get it really wrong. I mean, I've had people come to me and they've said to me, Timon, God must hate me because of such and such in my life. He must really hate me. Well, when you look at God's word, the reason why suffering and pain comes into the life of a Christian is not because God hates us, but because he actually loves us and he allows things in our lives to come into our lives to purify us and change us. Probably the worst example I heard of someone misinterpreting what God was doing in their lives was I heard this story about this couple who were committing adultery and they were a Christian couple and they decided that they thought to themselves, you know, if God wants us to continue in this relationship, then when we go down to the lobby of the hotel, if we lead someone to Christ, then that means that he obviously wants us to continue this relationship. And so they left their hotel room and they went down to the lobby and sure enough, they talked to someone about Jesus and that person ended up actually making some sort of commitment. So they thought to themselves, God must approve of our relationship. They were dead wrong. Dead wrong. The word of God is the standard by which we interpret the circumstances and situations of our lives. Not just our own feelings and own thoughts. And finally, my final point this morning is this. Is that when God providentially works in your life and he gets you to that point where through his word, you realize his purpose, then step up and obey. All right? So when God providentially works in your life, which he will do, he'll work circumstances in your life to get you where he wants you to be, and you look in his word and you see it's part of his purpose for you, then step up and obey. Look down in chapter 10, verse 1. We see that Samuel goes on to say this to Saul. He says, after telling him that he is going to be the king over Israel, he says in verse 1, and this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that, that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there, Father, and come to the oak of Tabor. And three men going up to God at Bethel will come, uh, will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they shall greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. And after that you shall come to Gebath Elohim, 
where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with the harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you all what you should do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. Now, this is the moment that Saul became a believer. God regenerated his heart. He changed him and he became a believer in the Lord. And all these signs came to pass that day. Now, there were three signs that Samuel gave to Saul. Sign number one about the donkeys, that the donkeys were found. You know, in this, God was teaching Saul that God would solve his problems. You know, as a leader, what you need to know is that God will solve your problems. If you take your problems to God, he's the one who will work on your behalf. And Saul, as the king, would need to know this. The second sign was about uh, being given loaves of bread. This was a sign that God would provide for his needs. As the king of Israel, he would have to Uh, have a huge army and so he would need them to be fed and so he would need God to provide his needs but the third one is very interesting it's that the spirit of the Lord would come upon him and he would join in a group of prophets and he would start prophesying and he would start doing things that were different to his own personality now here God was teaching Saul the most important lesson that God would enable him to do more than he could do in himself. And that is a significant lesson in ministry. It's a significant lesson that we all have to learn to rely and depend upon the spirit of God to do more in us than what we can do ourselves. And we see that all these signs were fulfilled. And in fact, the, uh, the narrator points out in particular that third sign Uh, from verses 10 to 13 and how it was fulfilled and then that there was actually a proverb that they wrote about Saul and how he was prophesying the proverb went like this is Saul also among the prophets so all these signs were fulfilled to show Saul that the Lord was with him that the Lord's purpose was for him to be king and that he should step up and be the king in Israel but notice what happens notice what happens Saul's uncle comes to him and says, where did you go? And he goes, oh, to seek out some donkeys. And when we saw they were not found, we went to Samuel. And the uncle asks him, please tell me what Samuel said to him. But notice Saul told him plainly about the donkeys, but the matter of the kingdom, he didn't speak about. The donkeys was only a side issue. The matter of the kingdom was the big thing. And Saul says nothing about the kingdom. He's not stepping in and stepping up to the call that God has on his life. Notice what goes on to happen in verse 17. We see that Samuel calls all the people together to the Lord at Mishpah. 
And they're going to find out the will of the Lord, who is going to be king. And so all the tribes are present. Verse 20, then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot and he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by clans and the clans of the Matrites was taken by Lot and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired of the Lord again, is there still a man to come? And the Lord said, behold, He has hidden himself among the baggage. He's supposed to be stepping up and being the king. Stepping into his calling, into the purposes of God, but he's hiding in the baggage. Now you contrast this over in a few chapters with David, a king after God's own heart. That when he was anointed as king and he went to the battle lines to give his brothers some bread. And the call went out, who will go up against the Philistine? David put up his hand and said, I will. You see, I want to challenge you here today. If God has worked providentially in your life to get you to a place where he's, he's revealed his purpose to you from his word, then you need to step up and obey him. As a church, we need to step up and obey him. God is working in our church. He's doing great things in our church. He's bringing people along. Next Friday, we have, a, we ha- we have a, you know, two services on Good Friday. Why won't you invite people? Why won't you step up and step into the calling that God has for us to be witnesses, to invite people to, to hear a dangerous message? You know, the last two Good Friday services, we've seen God work powerfully in the hearts of people and draw people to himself. Two years ago, I I remember Sam Barber, you know, at Good Friday as Justin was carrying the cross down our center aisle, representing Jesus carrying the cross. She broke and she came to the Lord that morning. God will do it again, but we need to step up and embrace his purpose in our lives. This Sunday... Tegan and I have been here four years. And six years ago, it was 2008, and uh, we were feeling like God was leading us somewhere else from Subi. And I was actually teaching at an OCF camp up at Woodhouse in the hills uh, for the week. And I looked at, uh, I looked on ACM website, I can't remember why I was looking on ACM website, but I looked on ACM website, and there was an advertisement for the senior pastor role at Oakton Baptist Church. And so I quickly sent Les my resume, and he looked, obviously looked over it, and he sent me back an email and said, would you like to get together? And so we, uh, I said, sure. And so uh, I traveled back down here and had a look around the campus, and had just an initial meeting with, uh, with um, I think it was Jeff Littlefair and Pastor Paul and, and also uh, some others at that time. And then they dropped me off at the airport. And then a little while passed and Pastor Paul rang me up and asked me, he said, do you, how do you feel about coming and being the pastor at Oakton? And I said, no, I don't feel a sense of calling I just don't feel that this is right at this time. There were still some things I had to deal with at Subi, and so I said no to Pastor Paul. Well, a few months went by, and um, 
And by that time, I'd started to once again sense that it was time to move on. And interestingly enough, or providentially enough, round the corner from my house was a street. And you know what the street's name was? Oakton. It was Oakton Street. And every time I'd drive past that, I would think to myself, I wonder if they found their senior pastor yet. And I would just pray for them. Pray, I'd pray for that, that man, God, that you would just give him grace, because I know what that church is like. So, <laughs> no, I didn't pray that. But, um, <laughs> but a few months passed by, and, uh, and I was actually going to a place to pray. And Pastor Paul rang me on my way to this place. I was praying about my future, where God would have me be. And Paul said to me, now I know no means no, but we really think, you know, you would be right for our church. So, so please reconsider. And so I said to him, well, interestingly enough, I'm on my way to pray about this very question. And, and so we started the conversation up again. And then I actually came for a visit a few months later. But I didn't bring Tegan that time. It was just me by myself. We had just had a little baby, only a six-week-old Bella. And uh, so I came here and I preached on a Sunday morning and I, I realized that you guys are a good bunch. And, and I got grilled by the elders for six hours straight on a Saturday about all different types of questions. And then on my way home from the airport, uh, to the airport from here, Pastor Paul drove me and he, when we're getting out, he put his hand on my shoulder and he hoogan ratted me. He said, I think you're God's, God's man for our church. And I thought then, I knew then that God was calling me here. But I thought to myself, how in the world am I going to tell Tegan? I mean, she had told me before I'd left, you can go to Adelaide, but there is no way we are, we are going to Adelaide, all right? We are going back to Queensland where our family come from. So you can go and check it out, but don't you come back and tell me all about how wonderful Adelaide is. So when I got back to Perth and I got off the plane, Tegan picked me up and she said, right, I don't want to hear it. Not a word. Don't talk to me about it at all. I'm not in that place where I'm ready. We've got a small baby and I need to focus on that. So I just let, let her be. And for four weeks, I said nothing about my visit. I told her nothing about it. It was difficult. I tell you, I just wanted to tell her all about it and how I'd been hoogan ratted and all that sort of stuff. But... <laughs> I just, just didn't tell her anything. And then one day, we were at church, and it was, a, we were at, it was a mission service, and the preacher was preaching on how we must go where God sends us. And then the final song was actually this song, um, I will go where you send me. Jesus, take me, now I am yours. And Tegan was singing the song like we often sing, you know, just sing the words. And then there was this person who got up out of the congregation and walked towards her and they had on their t-shirt, I love Adelaide. <laughs> and Tegan thought to herself, well, you may, but I don't. <laughs> and then she started to sing again. I will go where you send me. Jesus, take me now. I am yours. And on the car trip home, she turned to me and she said, the Lord has spoken to me tonight. I know that we are supposed to go to Adelaide. I know that God is opening up that door for us and we're supposed to go. And God did a number of other things, but April 2010, we came here. See, my wife was willing to step 
up into the moment and obey God's voice as he was leading. And I tip my hat to her in being able to do that. It's easier for me because I'm like, I'll go wherever, you know, quick, let's go, you know. But, but she, God spoke to her and she, she was willing to step into the moment. And I just wonder, I wonder people, how's God been working the circumstances of your life? As you look at his purposes in scripture and you, you marry them up to his purposes in scripture, are you running away? Are you in fear? Are you hiding in the baggage? Are you stepping up saying, Jesus, take me. I am yours. Use me. Use me for your purposes. You know, this has been four years of, of great ministry, but the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And we need everyone stepping up, everyone saying, this is my church. Everyone saying, I'm going to come together to celebrate Jesus. I'm going to come to grow, become like Jesus. I'm going to give and serve Jesus with what he's given me. I'm going to go and share Jesus. You know, I believe the best is yet to come. We haven't seen, we may have seen some blessings and praise God for the blessings that we've seen. But we are yet to see what God can do. Through a church that says, Jesus, take me, I am yours. And I want to challenge you as we come to the end of our series. What's the state of your hearts before the Lord today? Is it that heart that says to the Lord, I want to do your will. I want to serve you, Lord. I want to go your way. Or does it say no? And out of fear and lack of faith, you hide in the baggage. I want to challenge you. If you want to say to the Lord, Jesus, take me now, I am yours. And I want you to stand in the last song and sing with me to the Lord. Let's be a church that's a church after God's own heart. That serves him, worships him, honors him. Let's pray together. If you want to say that this morning, then stand in your place now. Lord Jesus, we stand before you because we want to be your people. We want to go where you lead us. We thank you that you're providentially in control of all the circumstances of our lives. And Father, there are some people who are hurting here this morning, Father. And Lord, I pray that you will comfort them by knowing that you have a purpose. And you will conform them through this suffering to the image of Christ. I pray, Father, for your people here today, Lord. We, we want you to empower us. We believe that you will give us everything that we need. We believe, Father, that you will give us, you will solve all of our problems as we depend upon you and look to you. And we believe that you will provide all the resources we need for the mission that you have called us to. And so we look to you now, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. Again, if you would like any information about the life at OBC, please go to our website at www.oaktonbaptist.org.au.